The Lord be with you. That is fun. Um, hey, so just in case, um, also, if you're um, of the type to take notes, which I highly recommend for everybody, you never know when God is going to call upon you to teach or lead, and uh, nothing will be more valuable than the notes from other people, um, even if just to you know, warn you away from certain things. Um, but the, uh, uh, I recommend that, especially today, if you are um, a single person and you're interested in becoming not a single person, um, if that's part of your, you feel like God's calling on your life. We don't, we don't minimize singleness here. Singleness is a, is a powerful calling and uh, comes with it a special, um, a special gift that can't be replaced any other way in the church. At the same time, a lot of times single people don't want to be single. Or if you're in married and, and there are times that you wish you were single, um, there also is some great material for you here in how to create um, the type of marriage that you would want to be in. Um, we are not powerless when it comes to marriages. And so the idea of Relationships 101, um, this chapter is going to be one of the best chapters in the whole Bible for engaging with this conversation of um, how to be the kind of person who is in a great relationship. It's not going to be the focus of the talk. I'll reference it once or twice, but I thought I would prepare you in advance in case you want to be taking notes on that aspect of it. What are the character traits of a human being that causes them to be awesome at relationships? And so hopefully you'll be able to take notes on that as well. Have that in the back of your mind. Um, uh, and then um, also I wanted to comment on the fact that, that, that Paul, not the Apostle Paul, uh, Paul McKenzie, just said, said the line, something similar to, I didn't get the whole thing down, but um, the romance of redemption. And I just want to start off by saying, like, um, it's, it's really a bad idea to take a line that is better than anything the preacher's going to say and to throw it out in the meet and greet. Like, dude, don't be doing that to me. Like, that's a, um, that was, I was like, man, I should, that should have been the subtitle of today's text. Okay, so anyway, next time I teach this and you've all forgotten that I've taught it, it will be the subtitle of the text. Um, Hopefully, Paul will have forgotten by then, too. All right, so um, chapter 2, verse 1. If you are in the book of Ruth, um, open up your Bibles, the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. There is so much here already. You remember being depressed when you left church last Sunday, or at least when you left the service, because it seemed like the book of Judges had not ended. With Ruth, chapter 1, is still just as dark I'm still just as depressing. We have these two women, a bitter old woman and a foreigner, and they have come to Bethlehem, and they have really no hope. Um, they really have no future. And so we actually had to cheat a little bit just in order to, write the, to light the hope candle last week by showing you that there was going to be hope, that there is hope, um, but, but Naomi didn't have it. She was a bitter old woman, and she had actually changed her name to bitter, if you'll remember correctly. So in this first verse, we, we've experienced the relief of realizing there is hope. And this story, the hope, the Savior character of this story, of this account from Scripture, is Boaz. And he is introduced in a powerful way. So Naomi had a relative of her husband's. Now this is a hint, since you're, again, I said again, as I've said before, you're a good, um, well-trained Jewish audience. And so you go, oh, a relative of her husband. Now that's intriguing, so we're going to spend a lot of time, probably week four, talking about the kinsman-redeemer law so that you'll see how that fits together. Um, but, but just understand, like there's, this is referencing kind of a, a sense of, oh, there's that, now that's intriguing. He's a relative. Um, that means he could step in in a way that really no one else could or not many other people could. But I'll come back to that. And then the word, a worthy man. 
This is, this is a powerful in the Hebrew. This terminology is, is it, it, worthy man doesn't come close to expressing the power of the Hebrew here. Um, and so you have two different Hebrew words here. The first one means great or powerful. And so again, worthy man just doesn't, a, a mighty man, a powerful man, a man of influence, of significance. And the next word, um, chayil or chayil, actually is most often translated in the Greek, army. So here you have a powerful army in one man. Um, that's, that's kind of the, literally kind of the one man army. Mighty, excellent, powerful, impactful, influential, virtuous. So here you have, it's, it's almost like a, two different words that mean similar concepts doubling on each other. The powerful, powerful, the, the great and mighty, right? Um, is that what they say for Oz? The great and mighty Oz? Is that right? So it's, it's kind of like that. Like this is the great and mighty Boaz. This is the, the powerful and influential. This is the one man army. This is the guy who's going to come sweep in and save the day. Now I'm just, in case I forget so that you will hold this onto your brain when we get there. There's going Before the end of this book, Ruth is going to be described with, this set, with one of these two words. That, that's a, it's a powerful, a powerful concept. Interestingly enough, Boaz, remember how we talked about how important names are? So all the different name meanings in chapter 1, especially for the Hebrew audience, Boaz is not a Hebrew word. It doesn't mean anything in the Hebrew. Now, intriguingly, it sounds like a Hebrew phrase that means um, powerful one or a man in him is power. So it may be that, that when his mother named him, she named him with something that sounds like the Hebrew phrase in him is power. It's also significant, and I think men, some of us, we can connect to this and identify with this. The truth is in many ways, Boaz is who gives this name meaning. That's a cool concept, the idea that, that your name wouldn't mean anything, but then by the time you were done living, now that name means something. I like that. Um, it's interesting, if you look up the word Mary, so you, you, you decide to go into your, you know, you're trying to decide what to name your kids, and so you go to buy one of those books that has name meanings, and you look up Mary. Most of them are going to say pure, sweet, um, kind. They're going to have these very positive words. But you, you know what Mary means, right? Because we talked about it last week. Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word for? Bitter. Which, they usually don't put that kind of thing in the name your baby books, right? I mean, they, they, they want to come with a... But think about this. Mary, the mother of Jesus, in so many ways, has changed that meaning for us in English. When we hear the word Mary, we don't go, oh, bitter. That's not, we don't think Naomi, bitter, we don't think Israel bitter. We think the sweet, generous, kind, submissive woman that mother, the mother of Jesus was. The poetic person who responded to the instruction that she was given with the type of generosity that she did. That's an intriguing idea that we, could we even change the meaning of our names through our lives? Um, this idea of power has gone out of popularity in today's culture. Um, here's, here's the, and I, I, I used to teach self-defense and, and, uh, and as a psychologist, I remember being, studying and seeing like, what is it that, that makes someone a victim? And they've done this. They've done many, many, many different studies where they've taken victimizers and predators and they've, they've get, shown them video footage or shown them people and asked them to rate them as what degree of victim they are. 
And, and one of the interesting, intriguing things is that um, there's really only two things that truly makes a woman not a victim, um, not be perceived as a victim to a victimizer. Really only two things. There's a lot of ways to influence it, to reduce it, to make your... And you all know them because you've all watched Oprah. She, you know, she walks with her head up. She looks like she knows where she's going. She's got her keys in her hands. Not between her fingers, by the way. That, that's a bad idea. You want to unlock your door. That's the best thing with your keys. But So you, you've all seen this type of thing. Um, but here's the thing. There's really only two things that causes a victimizer to see a video of a woman and be like, no, she's, she's, totally, she's totally off target. Nope, not going to do it. One is a big dog. If she's walking with a big dog, automatically the criminal says, I'd just soon stay away from the big dog. Because big dogs are, are un unpredictable. They're scary. You never know what they're going to be willing to do. You know what the second one is? A man. It literally, a woman walking with a handgun in her hand is more of a victim, is rated higher as a victim than a woman walking with an unarmed man. Why? Turns out, same reason. The same reason that the big dog is scary to the criminal, so is a man. Even not a big man, a man, because a man is unpredictable in that moment. He never knows for sure what the man might be willing to do or not do to protect the woman that he's with. Anyone who's willing to die, if, he, if this guy's willing to die for her, that becomes very unpredictable and that's scary. So here's the problem for women is that when you take masculine power and you strip it away, what you're doing is you're stripping away by far the best defense against predator, predatory strength for women in our culture. And so the Hebrews, the he, God's, that's part of why God's law, the way it's written, a lot of times the punishment, they didn't have a police force. Who was punishment meted out by? So if you, if you assaulted somebody, who was going to chase you down and deliver your punishment? Her father, her brothers, her husband, right? That's how that was played out. And their hands were untied. It was like, because they're scarier. They're terrifying. You never know what they're going to do. We have stories in the Bible where they, they wipe out whole cities because of what happens to a sister, right? And so this is the, the problem. What we have is, with Boaz, is we have a man of great power. And for people who have been victimized, that's scary. Masculine power like that is very scary. But understand, Ruth, who has no hope, and Naomi has no hope, what they really, really need is the vast power that a man like Boaz can bring to the table. And when his vast power is turned in her defense, this is now what's going to save them. It's, it's interesting, years ago when I, um, I was given two gifts at about the same time, this is probably 20 years ago, one was a beautiful painting from the turn of the century, the 1900 century, not 1906. And it's a painting of a hunting dog. I think I've got a little bit of a ring. Is anybody hearing a little ring in my voice? No? Okay. Just me. Never mind. I just do what the voices tell me, right? So this is a, uh, this was, it was a beautiful painting that had um, a, a hunting dog. So my whole family going way, way back with raised dogs. And, and so a hunting dog carrying a bird clearly back to the master, the, the owner, and it's really pretty painting. And, and then the other was a sword that was meant to be an Excalibur replica. And I was given both of them about the same time. And as a, all I was doing full time then was therapy. And so what I did is I hung them both in my office, my counseling office, for about a month. And at the end of the month, I asked the women who had experienced victimization, who I knew would be honest with me, and said, um, okay, so I've had these things hanging a month. You've seen them a few times. Tell me how you relate to these two items. And I thought they would say, oh, the puppy is awesome. The sword scares me. 
That's what I had predicted, 100%. And I got 100% the opposite. From the women who had experienced victimization, they said, I can't stand the painting because I identify with the bird. I was like, wow, okay. That's got to go. And 100% of them said, the sword doesn't scare me because it's in your office and I know it's your sword. And I know that the only way that, that sword metaf metaphorically would ever be wielded would be in my defense for my protection. So knowing that it's your sword gives me great comfort. Somebody else's hands? No, it would terrify me. But in your office, it gives me peace. That's the concept here of Boaz. That Boaz comes out, he, he is introduced this way with such power and with such a sense of significance that you're going to see the whole story begin to change because of this one man. All right. How can that power be expressed? Not my way, but God's way. That's, that's what's important about power. Because um, I think it says somewhere in the Bible, with great power comes great responsibility. Actually, that's Spider-Man comic books, but it's, it's a biblical concept. All right, so Ruth chapter 2, 2 and 3. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, whose sight I shall find favor. And, and she, Naomi, said, go, my daughter. And she went out and began gleaning in the field after the reapers. And she happened, just purely by coincidence, that's in their own purpose, she just happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was in the clan of Elimelech. So, so the plot thickens here, right? Okay, we, we hear about it, Boaz, and then now Ruth is starting to be drawn into the orbit of Boaz. She's gleaning. So just so you'll know, many of you probably, if you've grown up in church, you've been taught a little bit about gleaning. Gleaning was a series, a, a heading for a series of laws meant to protect poor people and uh, guests in the community. So we're going to look at those two real quickly. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 21. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf on the field, you do not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord may God, your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. When you beat the olive tree, you will not go over them again. It is for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Notice, so this, this idea, there are multiple examples. There's another passage that talks about how they're not allowed to, to harvest the corners of their field. So what you have are professional harvesters who would go through and they would... They would they would harvest the, the wheat, the barley, the olive, the grapes, but they only were allowed to go through once. Now, don't, don't have in your head, if any of you have done much in the way of this, I grew up with the grandparents who had a, a large farm, and we would go and, and harvest it at times. And it was amazing to me. If you, you, could, you were, could be good at this. My grandmother was good at it. I was terrible at it. Even as a 16-year-old would go through with my perfect vision and get at the end, and she, would, she could come behind me and gather that much more again that I had somehow left behind. And, and so, because that's not the law of our land, you can, you're allowed to do that. In their land, it wasn't. And they would have had professional harvesters who would have come through, hired to come in and, and harvest. And they would have moved with the harvest as, it, as, it, as the temperature change went all They would move and, and go from place to place and harvest. Now, <laughs> they were good at it. They may have even been paid based on the weight of what they brought in. 
They bring it in, it gets weighed, they get paid based on that. So they had to be really good at this. So don't, don't have the impression that they were going to gather a lot. Gleaners weren't going to gather a lot. The professionals would not have left a lot behind after the first round. They would have carefully done this. So this is what it is. But notice this law. It's a straight-up entitlement for sojourners, meaning foreigners um, who are in the country, foreigners, widows, fatherless. And so it's a straight-up right. It's an entitlement. Many of the laws of the, the Hebrew laws were, did not apply to guests, to non-Jews. This one is specifically for them. So here you have this idea. This is a, a big deal. And um, so how does Ruth even know about the law? Seems significant. Ruth seems to know that this law is in existence. I suspect it was famous. Maybe other countries did it too, but my guess is it was famous in countries around that you could go to Israel as a foreigner and gather behind the gatherers. That said something about these people. This was different. This was a level of generosity that is unthought of. Why would anyone do this? Why would anyone allow this? This is craziness. I mean, you're, they have six weeks of barley harvest max. And if you miss any of it in God, because of God's law, you just missed it. You've got to survive the rest of the year on about four months of harvest in Israel. That's, that's significant if that's all you get. And by the way, you've got to take one day out of seven off. So this is, this is significant as, a, as something that, that God commands his people to do to communicate a level of, of, of generosity that is off the charts. So... The barley harvest, as I said, lasts about six weeks. It starts in March or April, so we even know what time of the year this was. Somewhere in the March and April, about Passover, um, somewhere in, in probably the, near the time of Passover, they are Ruth and Bo and Ruth and Naomi come back. Ruth begins to glean. So, <clears throat> why do we like? To, by the way, why do we like this book so much? And doing some research, the part of what we like about the book of Ruth, it's. If, if, you're, if, you're not, if you don't have a lot of experience studying Scripture, then there are certain books that are more likely to, your, to be drawn to. And we really like those. They're easier for us as Westerners. Ruth is one because there's a lot of dialogue. We like dialogue. We like when people talk to each other. We like the, the narrative of that. It's even set up in a way that we like. It's like um, there are numerous or kind of, um, I guess for lack of a term, we're call them sandwiches in the book of Ruth where you have a beginning and an ending and then there's stuff in between that it all mirrors each other, narrowing down to one like a like a, a, you know, an Oreo cookie or something where you've got something on each end and then the cream filling in the middle. And we, we like Oreos. And so it's a, it's a good, like, we connect with this type, this model of writing. We, it's really easier for us to read. Also, all of the speaking is gentle. It's all, it's all except for Naomi saying that she's bitter. Most of the conversation that goes on here is kind. Um, even the, the way it's written is, is things are asked in question instead of like, it's, it's not, um, I, I, I told them this, it's didn't I tell them this? It's, there's a lot of language like that. There's a, a lot of gentleness, a lot of positive. Um, this is, in my mind, one of those things that it is, it is an opportunity we have in our homes and our relationships. Do the words, are the words that come out of our mouth, are they positive? Are they kind? Are they generally a blessing. This is, this is something that we see all through every time. Pretty much every prayer in the book of Ruth is a blessing. Um, when we were talking about this, Paul had uncovered this, that, that, that the fact that essentially every time you see a prayer, it's encouraging. It's a blessing. It's just, there's so much of this that's so awesome. We're going to see some of these. And then we get, so, so Boaz shows up in the field where she is gleaning. And I've got a 
Move quickly. Okay. Um, Ruth 2.4 begins with this. The Lord be with you. So Boaz comes out to his field and says, The Lord be with you to his men. When I went and looked just to make sure that this is truly who is given credit for this, um, even when I went to like the Catholic websites and stuff like that, they all referenced Boaz. This wasn't something that a priest said or that a pope said. This wasn't something that, that was said by some religious hierarchy. This was a Bethlehem businessman who initiates the greeting that has been used in churches and, and, and all, all over for now thousands of years. Um, Dominus Vobiscum is the Latin. So anytime you see something or you hear something where someone says in the Latin, Dominus Vobiscum, or the Lord be with you, no, this is a reference back to a Bethlehem businessman. I acknowledge I have an inappropriate bias towards ministry, clergy type ministry. I, I totally acknowledge that. When I see someone of great capacity or of great intelligence or of great skill sets, I think we need to get them working in a church somewhere. Part of, part of my training, part of why years and years ago, now gosh, probably 20 years ago, I asked um, Newt Farah to mentor me was because the, here was a businessman who was leading the church and leading in God's kingdom and I needed to experience that so that maybe some of my inappropriate bias would be bled off. Boaz is another great example of this. The priests at this time are essentially, as we talked about, mafia. Meanwhile, Boaz, the businessman, is the godly leader who we are all pointed to here. This is, this is a beautiful picture. So Boaz walks out to all of his men. These would have been roughnecks and says, the Lord be with you. And they reply to him, and the Lord bless you. That's, that's a pretty cool picture. It's similar to what Gabriel says to Mary in Luke 1. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. The Apostle Paul closes out, begins part of the closing out of 2 Thessalonians with, And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. All of these echoing the words, the angel echoing the words of the Bethlehem businessman, Boaz. <clears throat> I do like that he shows up at lunchtime. The passage seems to indicate he showed up at lunchtime. Um, I, I like the fact that Boaz is not a micromanager. Just something that simple. He has put people in charge of something. He doesn't need to show up first thing in the morning to see if they're there. He's able to show up at lunchtime, and they've already been working all morning. Um, this is, he's that type of a leader of his people. He's a good businessman. Um, he has good instincts for this, good intelligence for this, not a micromanager. But he shows up and says, verse 5, Boaz says to his young man who was in charge of the reapers. Again, so many tiny little things. Notice the young man who was in charge of the reapers. He was willing to give new, new people a chance. He didn't, he didn't hire some established person to be in charge of the reapers. He hired a young man to be in charge of them. I just think that's little things like that. I just think that's cool. Anyway, so he says, whose young woman is this? So I spoke at DBU about the characters of Dallas Baptist University where Mark is at their chapel this week. And I said... Why did Boaz notice Ruth? So Boaz walks out into the field. There are probably numerous reapers. We don't know, but let's assume there are numerous reapers. And he walks out there and he's talking. He walks up to his men. The Lord be with you. He gets a little update. He talks up to, walks up to the young man who's in charge of the reaper and says, Who is that? Whose young woman is that? 
Who is she married to? Who is her father? Who's, connect me to for someone. Who, who is that? Now, why? Why does he notice her? I'll ask you two. Why do you think he notices her? Okay, okay, she's hot. She's beautiful, right? Here's what's intriguing. Ruth is never described physically in the book of Ruth. She's, never, she's always portrayed in paintings as a beautiful woman. She is never described that way in the book of Ruth. What seems to catch his attention, is, we can discover in the answers that he has given. The answers he has given is that you get the, 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 um, the leader, this young man says, um, she had come to him and said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Now, first of all, Notice, she's entitled to do this. This is law. And what is her response? To graciously ask. Entitlement is an ugly trait. It is ugly in men and women. And she's not she doesn't engage with the entitlement. Well, boys, I'm here. It's, would it be okay with you if I glean? She doesn't have to ask, but she does. This graciousness is one of the things that sets Ruth apart in an amazing way. Um, so notice, so then she came, and the, 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 the leader, this young man says, and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. So here's what I think makes her stand out. My opinion is, here are the professional reapers. They showed up at first light, and they are reaping. This is their income. They are reaping this. They are, they are taking things. They're all this kind of stuff. And the, the issue is, Boaz walks up and is like, wait a minute. There's a young woman who's like five feet behind the reapers. Anything they drop, she's grabbing. I mean, it's, there's no distance because she showed up at the same time they did. This isn't some lazy version of homelessness. She is a hard worker, and she is nipping at the heels of the professionals. And he's like, what, what, who is that? I don't remember hiring her, and yet she's right there with my workers. And the guy says, oh, she's, she's been at this all morning. She's only had one small rest. It may be that the professionals have had one an hour. She's been working nonstop the whole time. This is what makes her stand out, is her work ethic. I mean, she's right there working hard, diligently. And, and this is, that's a pretty amazing, I think that's actually what, given the answer that the young man says, it isn't her physical attractiveness. That's what they guessed at DBU too. But, but, and and she, maybe she is beautiful. We really don't know. It's her character that is shown to us over and over again in this passage, not her physical features. All right, so this, I, I, I talked a little bit at DBU about admiration versus attention. I won't go into that too much here, but it seems to be that what she has already drawn is Boaz admiration not just his attention. Pretty cool. All right, she's right on the heels of them. Um, so chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, oh, wait, sorry, just did that one. Then we do, Boaz is impressed. So the first thing he does, ladies, you're going to really be appreciative of this. He starts by being protective. By the way, shepherding, not possessiveness. There's no sense of jealousy here. He is just shepherding her. He's taking good care of her. Responsibility, not jealousy. So he instructs the hired hands, the roughnecks. Remember, this is the era of the judges. In 2.22, just down a few verses, we're not looking at it yet, but just down a few verses, Naomi's going to reference the fact that she should stay with Boaz's men so that she doesn't get assaulted. 
She just straight up says, this is what this is about. There's no, in case you're like, is, this, is that what's being talked about here? It is. So Boaz goes to his men and he instructs the hired hands, these, these rough traveling reapers, um, hands off. See her? Hands off. Now, this is intriguing to me. How do you think this group of rough men would have responded to Boaz gathering them up real quickly and saying, hey, just a few things for you. One, see the woman there? Stay away. Hands off. How do you think they respond? Yeah, so some of you, especially those who have a healthy understanding of authority and the power of a man in authority, like Boaz clearly is. Um, it's funny because sometimes with the younger audiences, I will ask that question about Boaz and they'll, they'll be like, they were like, yeah, forget you. We'll do what we want to do. I'm like, you've never been around someone like Boaz. Let me tell you how people respond to someone like Boaz. What they say is, yes, sir. That's how this works. When Boaz says, hey, guys, hands off. I, I feel confident their response. And these aren't necessarily good men. They just know power. They understand strength. Hey, you're the boss, man. You're the boss. Whatever you say, we'll go with that. That's a, it's a, it's a neat picture for me. Um, they do, by the way. And abuse was an actual concern. What's her response? So when Boaz comes in his kinder and says, stay with them, by the way, it's really cool. Stay, stay around my people. Stay close to the women who work for me. So you'd have had serving women, serving these reapers, bringing them water, bringing them supplies, taking their stuff, storing it. He says, stay by those women. Stay by my girls, the girls who work for me who are under my protection. Have I not told these men, keep their hands off of you, so you just, the protection, the shepherding, um, the attention to her. He says, and by the way, what, you know, the, the serving girls are going to bring water. While you're reaping, while you're gleaning, you use their water. You don't have to go to the well by yourself. You just use some of the water that my, that my servants bring up. He provides water. He provides protection. He provides all these different things. How, what is her response? Again, entitled? No. Chapter 2, verse 10, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She is so humbled by this. Why would you do this for me? There's no good reason, and she's right. There's nothing about this era, nothing about this land, nothing about this time, nothing about this situation that would call upon Boaz to be generous to her. He has 100% of the advantage. She has nothing to offer. And he instead, so his response is this. Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people you didn't know before. Verse 12. Prayer. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You could spend another hour on that verse. This is beautiful. This, the poetry of this moment, the way he engages with her. He is referencing Psalm 90 and Psalm 91 when he's talking about this passage, about the wings and all of this. It's, it's incredible. This is a prayer and then scripture. Um, I was studying Wayne Broderick. Y'all have heard him preach a few times here. Um, at, at Fris and he's at Frisco. He's, um, he, I read through his notes. This was, he, he spent essentially a whole Sunday just on this. It was incredible. It's a good question then for us as men. Does Scripture drip from our tongues? 
I mean, does it just roll, roll into our conversations? Is it just woven naturally into the words we say, into the prayers we pray? Like this is part of what makes Boaz such a powerful and yet safe person is that he is so submitted to God's word. It's, it's anyway, y'all can tell, I just think Boaz is amazing. I am so humbled by him every time I study him. I, I think I could spend a year just, just teaching on nothing but Boaz. His, the character of a man here, you're, we're, we're going to come to what I consider one of the one of the coolest things ever. So coming up here, Boaz is aware. By the way, uh, again, so just to, just to connect to the type of man we're talking about, it would be natural to ask Boaz, Boaz, how do you already know all of this? How do you already know about Naomi? How do you already know about Ruth? How do you always know this? He hadn't even know what she looked like yet. He hadn't seen Ruth yet, and yet he knew her whole story. How is that? Any, anybody connected enough to this type of, of character from movies? If you ask a man like this, how do you know all this? What is his answer? It's my business to know, right? I, says, I see Boaz as such that character, like, oh, it's, it's my business to know. I know things. This is, this is my job. I know this type of stuff. Are you in Bethlehem? Yes. Then I know, <laughs> right? So he invites her to protect her. And in Ruth 2.14, he passed her. It literally says the language, and he passed her roasted grain. His own hands he passed her something of a delicacy for their people. This is at lunch. By the way, so he gives her water, and then, and then later he invites her to lunch. Um, I'm convinced this is where God's Word teaches us that coffee is first in dating and lunch is second. So just so you'll know, like, this is the divine plan for dating. Coffee, then lunch. All right, so um, he did it. And by the way, when she was done, it says she was satisfied, full with leftovers. When was the last time Ruth had been full? How many days had it been? How many weeks had it been? Months had it been? Maybe her whole life. People didn't experience fullness in this era. Years ago, for our Christmas party, we took, the whole church transferred our Christmas party, and, and we, instead of doing a Christmas party here with ourselves, we went to a, a, um, a low socioeconomic housing unit way up in the north part of Tyler, and we served chili, chili dogs. Some of y'all remember this? And, um, man, we had them out there, and the these people, the people who were there would go through the line and get to the end and, and would not sit down. They would, they would eat that hot dog and then they'd go back around in line and be back at the beginning. And what's funny is some of the younger ones especially were trying to sneak this in as if that wasn't going to be like they were. They were like, well, they know they won't give us more, just one. And, of course, they'd not met the people in our church at that point who were like, no, no. Do you want two? Do you want four? Twelve? I mean, how many do you... You would see these kids eating, and as we were leaving, I don't remember who it was who said it, but I remember as we were leaving, somebody going, when was the last time you think some of those kids were stuffed full? And I guarantee you some of them were. I was unreal, the number of hot dogs and the amount of chili those kids, some of those kids put away. They may not have been full in a long time. That that's reminds me, when was the last time she was full? She leaves his table full. Again, the divine picture here. Now, here's, here's maybe one of the most shocking things to me. And, and I don't know that other people see this or are honest about it, but one of the things that strikes me that's really cool is that I believe, I believe one of the things that God has hardwired into most of us as men, maybe all of us as men, is the desire to be the hero. Um, we see it from little kids. Um, they, they start immediately. I mean, Mark, Mark Hampton, when he was four, he wore a cape pretty much 24-7. Everywhere he went, he wore a cape. 
Um, and when people, and what's crazy was people would ask him, like, why are you wearing a cape? And he would always look at them like there was something wrong with their brain. He'd be like, because I'm a superhero. Like, you don't know why people wear capes? Like this, what's, what's confusing you? I'm wearing a cape. Anyway, so what was always fascinating to me was how often people felt the need to tell him somehow that he wasn't a superhero. Total strangers being like, yeah, just because you're wearing a cape, that doesn't make you a superhero. And I would, if I was there, I'd always step in and be like, yeah, ignore this person. Like, they don't know what they're talking about. You're a superhero. Of course, a four-year-old is someday going to learn that a superhero doesn't have to wear a cape to be a superhero. That being a hero is about more than that and about something different than that. But the idea that this is hardwired into us. Um, now we've come to the point of delusion where everyone can be a hero. Even if you're a big, fat panda, you can be a hero. And that's, which is unfortunate to tell kids like, hey, it doesn't matter. You can, but the, like, there's no hard work that goes into being a hero. There's no preparation. That's not, that's not honest. But, but listen, to be a hero, to, this is wired into us. And that's a good thing, men, that there's some part of us that wants to take the world around us and make it a better place for the people who matter to us. That's a healthy thing, I think, that God gave us. But there's a little bit, as humans, we don't, we don't have such a thing as pure motives. We don't create pure motives on our own. And we have a little bit of a, a dark side to this. And the dark side is that we like the idea of the, the, the beautiful woman who we have rescued feeling a little indebted to us. That's an adolescent aspect of this experience, is to say, I'm going to rescue the woman from the burning building, and then she's going to feel that, which is good, by the way, and that desire is noble, but there's also this like little bit of, and then she'll feel like she owes me something. Our, our culture pushes this. There's famous examples of someone gets rescued, and they kind of owe the hero a kiss, right? And this is, this is the, the, go ahead, show Although that one turns out to be a little weird, to be perfectly honest, since <laughs> they, are, they turn to be sister, brother, sister. Um, but I found many examples like a fireman and stuff like that, although, again, some of those were a little, uh, yeah, and that's sweet. <laughs> Gross. Anyway. Um, but there's this, there's this generalized sense of this, right? And so we want the woman to know we have rescued them. And that can continue easily into marriage and through dating and all that kind of stuff as there's this generalized sense of, hey, don't remember, I re don't forget I rescued you. Sometimes in broken marriages, I'll discover that, that that was the nature of their marriage is that he rescued her from an unhealthy family. And that's been the, the standard all along is, and you kind of owe me. And it's vitally important that the man never have that perspective, that he fight from that perspective. In Boaz, we have a man who not only rescues Ruth, but the main way he rescues her, he does it in a way that she cannot know he did it. This is a nobility beyond what almost any of us can, can have. It's, it's really stunning. He tells his men, he goes to these men and he says, to them, not in front of her, to them, hey, don't harvest quite so well. Drop a little extra. Leave a little bit more on the ground. Walk past a little bit. And as Ruth goes and she's picking this stuff up, because Ruth doesn't know any better. You get the sense that both Ruth and Boaz, by the way, are clueless to anything that has to do with each other. The whole book. Naomi knows, but Ruth and Boaz. And so he has her do, and she's picking up all this extra stuff. And sure enough, at the end of this, she comes out. Um, uh, let's see. Boaz gives to her and rescues her, but he doesn't let her know. By the way, one of the things that struck me about this is I think this is the root of the, of the proverb, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
is that so many, especially the, especially the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God, he's walking down the fields going, oh, look at all of this barley that was dropped. Man, I'm good at gleaning. Rather than realizing, you're such a fool. You think you did this? I remember years ago when, when a former president had that reference, that, that they referenced that, you didn't do this, and I thought, this is a beautiful moment. This is when my president is going to say, you didn't do this. God did this. That would have been really cool. That would have been very much so who we are as Christians going like, I didn't do this. I think I did this. I didn't do this. Of course we did this. Of course the, the community, of course all those things are true. But fundamentally speaking, we're not picking up stuff. We're not going, like, man, look at what a good business person I am. Uh-huh. See, yeah. What you don't realize is God is leaving stuff behind for you to pick up. That's, that's the, that just struck me as that, what a foolish mentality. Can you imagine Ruth thinking of herself as the God's gift to gleaning? When what she's found is God's gift to generosity in Boaz. And he does this, and she doesn't even know. By the way, this is, what, this is always what struck me as funny. So she comes home. <laughs> uh, I also, by the way, thought about the fact that I, I told the church staff when we hired them, we're going to be fixing things that no one's going to know that we fixed it because it has to be broken before someone knows it's fixed. And, and often we do things that years down the road, it won't break when it would have broken. And no one's going to know that. Everybody's going to be like, this is going great. Well, it's because of something that somebody made a decision that a lay leader or the leadership board or church staff did a long time ago. And, and now, now we're not hitting something that would have been bad. Um, but here's what strikes. So, so Ruth comes home with... 30 pounds of barley. So she, she comes home with 30, carrying th- a bag of 30 pounds. This is more like 40 pounds here of corn, but it's got about the same size, 30 pounds of barley. And she comes home and sets before Naomi, well, I went gleaning today. And Naomi says, really? Whose eye did you catch today? Naomi knows you don't glean Half a bushel of barley in a day. No one does that. The the, the language here is very clear. The mother-in-law says, where did you glean today? By the way, we're so naturally, we read it like a textbook, you know, like we're doing reading all together. And where did you glean? Instead, to recognize, Naomi's going, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. (laughs) She knows exactly what's going on here. The man's name with whom I work today was Boaz, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, "May listen to this. This is bitter. Miss Bitter's about to speak. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Do you feel the bitterness beginning to melt? And Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. Hmm. The all-knowing Jewish older woman. Naomi's mind is already at work. Her bitterness is starting to melt. Could it be that God will redeem this situation? That's how you're supposed to feel at the end of chapter 2. Could it be? Is that what we're seeing here? For about six weeks, Ruth is going to continue to work in his field. By the way, for those of you who I said, for, becoming, for, for having the kind of marriage you want, you want a devoted, gracious, diligent, hardworking, sweet, not entitled, kind, blessing, noble, authentic, sincere, respected, wise, and worthy woman, then you're going to need to be a trustworthy, reliable, competent, 
manly, strong, worthy, above reproach, considerate, intentional, esteemed, patient, appreciative, generous, protective, mature, and worthy man, which you have control over. You can be Boaz in your marriage. You cannot make your wife be Ruth. But your responsibility to live as Boaz is 100% sound and 100% between you and God and has nothing to do with her. And the same is true, ladies, for you. You can be Ruth. Whether or not your husband is Boaz is irrelevant to your calling to be Ruth. This is the picture. The picture of the book of, the book of Ruth and the story of Ruth and Boaz is if you want Ruth, you better be Boaz. And if you want Boaz, you better be Ruth. That's how this seems to be lived out. Even if you're married already, there's no reason you cannot become these people and begin to develop this type of marriage. Is there hope in their Redeemer? So here we are in Advent, teaching through Ruth and Boaz. So the first question, her bitterness is the, the poisoned well is beginning to miraculously turn sweet to living water. The hope that is there. And the peace, now this is a cool kind of peace, guys. The peace, not in knowing the plan, but in knowing the one that knows the plan, hasn't forgotten you. You may not know the plan, but the one who knows the plan has not forgotten you. And that realization, that is peace. We want the peace of control, of knowing and controlling the plan. That's what we want. That's not, God knows us not what we need. Don't read into that. <laughs> it's still there. Y'all just may not be able to see it. It's, it's, sometimes it's hanging on by a thread, right? That's preachable. This is the peace that passes understanding. We lose the phrase, the peace that passes understanding, a peace that doesn't make sense to anyone who doesn't get it. It turns out my God loves me. His kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. He wants me. He calls me. He came for me. He forgives me, and he will take care of me. I will find peace in my Redeemer. So as we pray, let's see if we can get that thing relit. Oh, well, work on that. As we, as we pray, that God would show us that we are powerful to bless others. So I want, I want to pray, and, uh, and then, um, so I'm going to pray, and then you could stand, and we will sing together, and we will... Um, however you need to respond in the truth of, of recognizing who God is here for you, that you can find peace in your Redeemer who has not forgotten the living or the dead. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will help us to be powerful, to bless, that you will help us to be powerful in your ministry of reconciliation that you've called us to, powerful in generosity because of your Son. Your Son has come to redeem us. Give us a peace that the world won't understand. A peace that they desire when they see it in our lives. We may not know your plan, Lord, but we have been reminded that you who know the plan, who wrote the plan, you have not forgotten us in this plan. Help us to know that our Redeemer lives and all that that means. In your Son's name, amen.